Molecular Minute podcast, the healthcare podcast focusing on precision oncology, molecular profiling, and how both are heavily integrated in taking care of patients and in advancing therapeutics for cancer care, as well as improving the outcomes of patients with cancer. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan, and I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at Caris Life Sciences. If you have listened to this podcast before, and I hope you did, you have to. What else are you going to do aside from listening to the Caris Molecular Minute podcast? You've learned from a couple of my prior guests about certain advances in urothelial cancer and lung cancer. We also hosted our chief scientific officer at Caris, Dr. David Spetzer, discussing the importance of RNA sequencing. Well, today, back with popular demand, I have Dr. Tian Zhang, an assistant professor of medicine at Duke Cancer Institute in the GU Oncology section. And we hosted Dr. Zhang talking about urothelial cancer and the advances that were presented at the last virtual ASCO meeting. And today, I have her on to discuss advances in prostate cancer. We're going to talk a little bit about the PARP inhibitors and the uh, couple of trials that looked at the activity of PARP inhibitors in castration-resistant prostate cancer, and we'll talk about some of the abstracts that were presented at the last virtual ASCO meeting. Without further ado, Dr. Tian Zhang on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Okay, well, she's back by popular demand, Dr. Tian Zhang from the Duke Cancer Institute and Duke University in the GU division, and she uh, is going to chat with me a little bit about advances in prostate cancer and what is really new in prostate cancer, alluding to some of the recent approvals as well as what was presented at the last virtual ASCO meeting that we all attended. Uh, and we'll talk about how uh, genomics and sequencing has really started to demonstrate an impact on how clinicians uh, treat patients with prostate cancer. Tian, welcome back to the show. I mean, I think we got so many positive reviews of uh, your addressing urothelial cancer. I think you're going to be our frequent guest in all things GU cancers. Welcome back. Hi, Shadi. Really great to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. We know what you do from the last podcast with GU Cancers, and you've done really amazing work over the past uh, several years. So I thought we'll spend some time talking about prostate cancer and um, what is the newest and greatest from ASCO as well as recent approvals. So really, sure. the floor is yours, and we'll, uh, we'll have a conversation about that. Where should we start? Sure. Um, well, you know, in prostate cancer, we've really um, hit the the mark with uh, new approvals in um, patients who have DNA damage repair mutations. Um, and so I think we should start there with the new um, uh, approvals from the FDA around Olaparib as well as Rucaparib. I guess take us through maybe a little bit before what led to these trials looking at Rucaparib and, uh, and Olaparib and uh, how long it's been in the work and then maybe we'll talk about these trials and what led to the approval. Sure. Well, molecular alterations in prostate cancer has been a field of study on its own uh, for a long time over the past decade or so and we've learned a lot about how uh, these patients have germline mutations, mutations that can be passed on 
um, from father to daughter and et cetera. And so these patients, um, about uh, 8 to 16 percent of metastatic prostate cancer tumors um, have some germline DNA damage mutations. Um, and these genes are genes like BRCA1 and 2, ATM, some of the Fanconi genes that show up in, in metastatic disease. And when we look at localized disease, it, the prevalence rate of these mutations is much lower. Um, so we think that these uh, DNA damage repair gene mutations confer much more aggressive disease. And uh, in our metastatic prostate cancer population, at least um, this has already made it into our NCCN guidelines to sequence every uh, patient with metastatic disease to try to pick up on these up to 15% or so of patients with these mutations. Um, the first study uh, of Olaparib uh, was published in 2015 um, in prostate cancer patients specifically, um, and this was a study run by Joaquin Mateo and his colleagues. There were 50 patients who had prostate cancer and were treated all with Olaparib, um, Olaparib being one of our PARP inhibitors um, that block DNA damage repair. And so there were 16 patients with DNA damage repair mutations. Um, and of those 16, um, a, a really astounding 14 of these patients had objective responses. Um, and as you look at patients who were, had pro- positive uh, mutations versus negative mutation status, uh, we really saw an improvement in both radiographic progression-free survival as well as overall survival for these patients with the mutations. And so that's what set the field um, for some of the subsequent uh, trials that we've seen, uh, the biggest of which is the profound trial that was um, reported uh, late last year. So that's maybe a good segue on uh, to talk about profound a little bit, but it's interesting because you mentioned 2015 when that initial trial, and it took five years to get the profound trial. And so, I mean, the field does move, but it does take years. It, it takes time until we um, really show something. So what, what was the profound trial? I've heard some views that were in favor I've heard some views that were very critical of it. Take us through maybe the profound trial and maybe the pros and cons. Sure, absolutely. And and just a point on your um, thought about, you know, five years that it takes to get a molecularly selected cohort of patients. Um, it certainly was, uh, it took a long time, um, but I think we learned a lot from it. Um, so the profound trial is our first biomarker selected phase three trial in metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer All of these patients had disease progression on a prior uh, novel hormonal agent, so either abiraterone acetate or enzalutamide, and they had to have uh, selected uh, gene mutation in homologous recombination repair. And so these are uh, the the cohort um, in cohort A of profound only encompassed patients with BRCA1, BRCA2, or ATM mutations. And then they had a second cohort of patients who had BARD1, BRIP1, CDK12, CHECK1, um, some of the Fanconi genes, and also the RAD genes. And so um, they, they separated these uh, cohorts as, uh, as two cohorts and then uh, randomized. Why, why were they separated, do you think? Like, why, what's your sense about why separating them? Anything? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, in, in part, um, we saw a lot of preliminary data that um, suggested activity in the BRCA1, 2, and also ATM-mutated patients. Um, and so perhaps they were trying to, you know, really show a signal 
um, in, in that particular cohort. And so, uh, you know, they treated these patients, there was a two-to-one randomization, so it was more likely than not that these patients actually received Olaparib, um, but the patients in the treatment arm were, Olap- uh, were treated with Olaparib 300 milligrams twice a day, and then um, the control cohort uh, was treated with physician's choice. So usually this was the other of either the abiraterone or enzalutamide that the patients hadn't received yet. And the primary endpoint of the study was radiographic progression-free survival, particularly in cohort A, so the BRCA1, BRCA2, and ATM-mutated patients. Um, and then this, there were secondary endpoints, where, which included cohort A and B, the, the overall radiographic progression-free survival, as well as um, the objective responses in each of these cohorts, um, time to pain progression, and of course, overall survival. Um, so it was really a molecularly selected phase three design compared to uh, you know alternative, um, which in in uh, many of these cases, you know, we are looking at patients who had progressed on Abby or Enza and then trying to select a, a different treatment for them. And the oral treatment, um, uh, the alternative oral treatment is certainly a, a choice that many patients make. So, so essentially in cohort A, patients have either received Abby and Enza and then randomized to Olaparib versus the alternative of Abby or Enza? Correct. That's right. And then in both of the cohorts. In both of the cohorts. Yes. And is this, was the sense that um, these patients should not have received chemotherapy at, despite failing one of the hormonal agents? Is that one of the – what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it wasn't an inclusion criteria. So patients could have had um, chemotherapy or not. So oftentimes in these cases, we're treating with either docetaxel or cabazitaxel. Um, and so the, the trial was stratified for whether the patients had received prior uh, taxing chemotherapy. And when we look at the baseline characteristics of who was enrolled in the study, about 65% of the patients um, on either of the cohorts uh, were previously treated with chemotherapy. Um, but it was not necessary um, as an inclusion criteria to go on to the study. So what did they find out? But, you know, the primary endpoint of radiographic progression-free survival in cohort A was certainly met. Um, the patients treated with Olaparib um, had a median radiographic progression-free survival of 7.4 months compared to 3.6 in the control cohort, and the hazard ratio was 0.34, so uh, quite statistically significant. And so uh, this was um, positive throughout all the subgroup analyses, so either patients who had been treated with previous taxanes or not, patients with measurable disease or bone-only uh, metastatic disease, and also across um, all the age cohorts, as well as uh, throughout the regions of the world. Um, so we really saw, um, you know, a good benefit in, in that uh, first cohort of patients with BRCA1, 2, um, or ATM mutations. However, if you look down at the breakdown of, uh, of these mutations and the alterations and, and the patients who had the best response, um, we see that patients who had BRCA2 as well as CDK12 mutations actually did a little bit better um, when put onto, uh, when treated with Olaparib versus uh, the control um, Aviorenza. Um, and if you looked at ATM and BRCA1, really these patients didn't do much different 
when comparing Olaparib versus physician's choice. Um, so when we're selecting um, uh, molecular alterations and when we're selecting patients specifically for these PARP inhibitors, you know, we um, as, a, as a group are very cognizant of which of these genes are mutated and whether that patient truly um, would have a benefit um, from these PARP inhibitors. I mean, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, are, are you... Are you sequencing all of the patients with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer to detect these 10 to 15%, uh, or are you sequencing select patients based on some phenotype? How are you approaching this in terms of your decision regarding sequencing? Our current guidelines are to sequence everyone with metastatic disease, and even in some of our high-risk localized disease that are likely to recur, we will offer germline testing. And on some of my patients who um, have first-degree relatives or they have children of their own that they really want to find out, um, are they part of this you know, 10 15% of patients um, who might have germline um, DNA damage, repair gene defects, um, they will ask for it as well. So uh, we've been offering it to everyone um, who's interested in obtaining it. Um, and it's a really either, either a you know, buckle swab or a one tube of blood, and, and it's an easy test um, to, to screen for um, these alterations. Do you feel, before we move on to the next uh, paper that you selected for us, do you feel that uh, there is a reason to compare the PARP inhibitors to chemotherapy in subsequent trials, future trials, or, I mean, do, or do you sense that this is not necessarily needed? How, how do you, where do you position chemotherapy, I guess, in these patients? Right. I think that's a really important question. And, you know, chemotherapy certainly is still a mainstay of our uh, treatment choices for metastatic castration resistant disease. Uh, It's somewhat harder to sign a patient up um, when we're randomizing to an oral PARP inhibitor versus an IV chemotherapy. Um, and so, you know, that can impact um, the ability of such a trial to, to be completed. Um, so I, I think it would be helpful um, certainly to have, uh, you know, two very active treatments and see whether the PARP inhibitor improves outcomes compared to chemotherapy. Um, but I think time will tell. All right, let's go to the next one. What do we have? Uh, so I, you know, the other approved therapy now um, in uh, in this population of patients is uh, rucaparib. Rucaparib achieved uh, accelerated approval by the FDA um, in May as well, um, and this was based on Triton two, um, a single arm uh, phase two trial. Um, of patients who had uh, BRCA1, 2, or ATM mutations and, uh, and were treated with rucaparib 600 milligrams twice a day. Um, now, Triton 2 did um, ask and include specifically patients who had had prior taxane-based chemotherapy, as well as at least one of the uh, novel hormonal agents, so at least either Abby or enzalutamide. Um, and so these patients were, were pretty heavily pretreated. I think what's significant and what led to its approval was that in patients with BRCA1-2 mutations, 
the objective response rate that they saw was about 44 percent with PSA, um, 50 percent PSA decline in about 52 percent of patients. Um, And as you know, similarly to what we saw in um, Profound, the patients who had ATM mutations, you know, didn't have quite as robust responses. Only about 9.5 percent of these patients had objective responses and only about 3.5% had any uh, a, a greater than 50% uh, PSA response. So again, we're seeing some differences in the molecular alterations and exactly which um, population of patients benefit from rucaparib. And I think you see that reflected in the FDA approval. This is specific for BRCA1-2 mutated patients who are uh, post at least uh, one taxane-based um, chemotherapy. Okay, so before I move on from the PARP inhibitors, I just want to make sure for the listeners to kind of summarize because um, we may have some general oncologists that they not don't see obviously GU oncology uh, like you do every day. So we, we sequence the metastatic, for the most part, metastatic CRPC patients. I know you mentioned in select situations, you also sequence earlier. And then if you have a mutation, like a BRCA1, BRCA2, or ATM, mm-hmm. are these the patients where you feel first line they should get olaparib or rucaparib or second line after they fail a hormonal therapy? Um, well, to be clear, the olaparib approval is also for post-novel hormonal agents, so post-ABI okay. or Enzyme. So all of these patients are at least second line patients. And, you know, we are uh, they could or could not have had prior taxane chemotherapy. So if they're finding it even post-chemotherapy, then certainly it, it's a, a, an approved therapy. But if it's um, after uh, abradrone or enzalutamide, only olaparib is approved in that uh, second-line setting. Um, and in the post-chemotherapy setting, the rucaparib is approved as well. Got it. Okay. That's that's. Exciting. What else? Um, So, uh, you know, at ASCA, we we saw two other studies that I think um, may potentially be practice changing soon. Um, The first of which I was thinking we could highlight the HERO trial, uh, the phase three trial of um, oral rolugalix. Now, were you a co-author on this? Remind me. Uh, I was not, although my my colleague, uh, Dr. Daniel George, was, um, and we had it open at Duke. Um, for uh, the majority of the study and and enrolled um, quite robustly to it. We'll give him a shout out. (laughs) That's right. We've really depended on um, androgen deprivation therapy for a long, long time for all of our prostate cancer uh, disease and control. And it is the backbone of all of our treatments. Even in castration-resistant disease, we will uh, continue relugalix. Um, but the hard part of, um, you know, these GnRH agonists is that um, they're all, you know, available in injection form. They're pretty long-acting. Um, and when we try to stop treatment, so some patients, we might do some intermittent treatment. And when we try to stop treatment, um, testosterone recovery takes a long time. And these patients are often left with 
um, months of uh, hot flashes and fatigue and uh, uh, other side effects, even months after we're, you know, our intention is to stop their treatment. And so this trial was, was really testing um, whether we could change these formulations of hormone deprivation. Um, and so my event, um, uh, Biosciences, formulated a uh, oral treatment um, with this uh, this uh, GNA and GNRH antagonist um, called uh, Relugalux. And then, how what was the trial design like? What did they do? Yeah, sure. So um, these were men with advanced prostate cancer who needed hormone deprivation, and they were randomized two to one to receiving either uh, Relugalix, and they were uh, loaded on day one with 360 milligrams and then sustained with 120 milligrams oral once a day, or uh, the control cohort were treated with uh, uh, Lupron, uh, Luprolide acetate, and um, in the three-month um, injection format, the 22.5 milligram dose. And so um, the primary endpoint of this tr- uh, phase three trial um, was for um, uh, week 48 sustained castration, um, and then also looking at secondary endpoints of uh, PSA responses, um, ca- early castration, um, and then also um, toward the end, testosterone recovery. Um, so how quickly these patients' testosterone um, recovered after um, about a year on treatment. And week 48, that's, uh, that's a metric from prior trials, it's really important, right? Week 48, just for listeners to, uh, there was a reason why they picked week 48, wasn't there? I think so. And, you know, week 48 really gives a, a, about a year of treatment. A lot of these patients were treated um, in the uh, salvage setting. And so they were treated with that intention of a year on, and then they would stop their treatment and, um, and see um, how their testosterone recovered. Um, so I think they did intentionally pick um, that, that one year, oh, 48 weeks on treatment um, uh, for this particular trial. And what did they find? And so, you know, they uh, randomized 934 patients, um, 624 of whom were treated with Relugalix. Um, and at week 48, 97% of the patients treated with Relugalix had sustained castration. Um, so that means the testosterone levels were below 50. Um, these patients all ha- also had better PSA responses by day 15, and their testosterone levels recovered. Um, about half of these patients had recovery of testosterone within 90 days of their um, stopping hormonal treatment. And in these patients, um, there was fewer uh, cardiovascular toxicities. Uh, Relugalix had about 2.8% of any major um, adverse cardiovascular event compared to um, standard uh, Lupron, which uh, at uh, week 40 was about 5.6%. Um, so the hazard ratio there was 046 um, So pretty significant differences, you know, thinking about the year on treatment and then um, recovery of testosterone levels um, after treatment and, you know, decreased um, cardiovascular events. So I know the drug is not approved, but obviously there's an anticipation that it might. How, how, I mean, how do you envision that this might affect kind of real world adoption, if you will, from, because like you said, Tian, we've been (laughs) for decades, that's what we are trained to use in terms of um, androgen deprivation therapy. Do you see this shifting with this or or do you see that, okay, it's it's unlikely to change behavior? 
Right. So uh, the FDA set a PDUFA date of uh, December 20th of this year. So uh, I would think that by the end of uh, 2020, we'll see Relugalix approved in, in this context. And, you know, in my practice, at least I have um, many pr- uh, patients with prostate cancer who come and they're really hesitant to start hormone deprivation. And they say, you know, I really don't want all the side effects. I've heard terrible things about it. And, you know, is there some alternative um, to try that could be, you know, shorter acting or, um, you know, might, I might feel a little better on it. And so I, I do think there's going to be an uptake in the market um, for an oral um, androgen deprivation therapy, especially one like this that's so short acting. It's, you know, easy on, easy off. And so uh, we can really suppress quickly. And then once we're done with treatment, um, take the patient off and, and their testosterone levels can recover quickly as well. And so that would um, impact quality of life. It certainly won't, uh, in my opinion, it certainly won't be a uh, an inexpensive option. So I, I do think probably this will have its cost and certainly a different cost um, uh, given that it's an oral therapy and will be subject um, to uh, you know, specialty pharmacy uh, co-pays. And so um, dependent on how it's priced and how the insurance companies will value it, um, you know, we, we may be facing an uphill battle in terms of obtaining it um, for some of our patients. I think you have another one for us, right? Do you have another? Uh, yes, I, I think um, uh, the last one I wanted to highlight was therapy. Um, and therapy was a, a randomized phase two trial that was performed in Australia and reported at, at um, ASCO this year. Um, it's a trial in metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer where patients were randomized to receiving either PSMA-targeted lutetium uh, or uh, cabazitaxel as the control cohort. Um, and so we should spend just a moment on lutetium. Um, and this is a molecule that's had um, some really encouraging preclinical activity. Um, it's a, a radioligand that delivers a therapeutic beta radiation, um, and um, specifically for patients who have um, expression of uh, PSMA, so prostate-specific membrane antigen. Um, these patients all had um, PSMA PET positive uh, disease. They they were selected because they had um, expression of PSMA, and then enrolled on this trial and treated with either lutetium. Uh, versus cabazitaxel. That trial uh, compared those two arms. I'm not, I don't recall actually how big the trial was. It's randomized phase two. So take us through maybe the outcomes and, and how large the trial was. Sure. Um, so they ended up enrolling about 200 men. Um, there were 98 men who ultimately were treated with lutetium and 85 men who were treated with cabazitaxel. The primary outcome was the uh, greater than 50% um, PSA response. And so um, they did see a significantly higher rate of uh, PSA responses in the patients who had uh, who were treated with lutetium, uh, 66% of these patients received, uh, achieved you know, greater than 50% PSA decline from baseline compared to cabazitaxel, uh, where about uh, 37% of these patients achieved that, uh, that benchmark uh, for an improvement in their PSA responses. Um, and so that primary endpoint was certainly um, uh, higher for patients uh, treated with lutetium. 
Um, and then they also looked at um, PSA progression-free survival as a secondary endpoint. Um, and again, patients who were treated with lutetium did better than the patients who were treated with cabazitaxel. The hazard ratio there was 0.69, um, and it uh, was also t- statistically significant. Lutetium, you know, it, it does have some side effects, uh, but unlike cabazitaxel, where the highest grade three, four events were in neutropenia, um, we saw um, thrombocytopenia being the highest um, in terms of overall frequency of 17% and also grade three, four toxicity around 11%. Um, some of these patients also experienced some dry mouth and dry eye syndrome of the SICA syndrome. Um, So things to watch out for um, when these patients are treated with lutetium. You know, we had the vision phase three trial of lutetium, PSMA targeted lutetium uh, open um, globally through last year um, and it closed to enrollment in 2019. Um, And I think with this phase two trial, plus um, once we have that phase three trial, uh, we're going to be uh, looking at something that can change and expand the treatment landscape for our uh, patients with metastatic castration resistant disease. Well, Tien, thank you. This is really great. I recall uh, back in 04 when the papers on Taxotere came out, it was just the panacea. I remember it was like, you know, the unbelievable um, thing in prostate cancer. It's amazing to witness how things have changed over the past uh, 15 to 20 years. Very grateful for your time. We're going to have you. ASCO GU is going to be virtual, as you know. Um, So we'll have you after ASCO GU to go over the presentations there. Any last thoughts before uh, I'll let you go? And I'm very thankful for your time. Oh, great. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure as always, Chetty. I appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I hope you enjoyed learning about certain aspects of advances in prostate cancer as presented by uh, our colleague, Dr. Tian Zhang from the Duke Cancer Institute. And until next time, take care of yourselves. And thank you for listening.